So thank you. It's an important part of our life together to make sure that as we continue to grow as a community, we're sharing, um, we're sharing life, we're sharing life. You know, the truth is we all just sort of bring our stuff here, right? It's not a perfect picture. It's a, it's a challenging picture. We don't walk in here on Sunday morning as perfect people with perfect families and perfect situations. We walk in here with all of our sort of uh, messes and our collective stuff, and we've got it, got it too, right? I've got two teenagers, very active. In fact, I came down from making announcements, and Cooper, my son, goes, Hey, Dad, one of your shoes curls up funny. And I went, What? He goes, yeah, the one on the right bends up like a witch's boot. I was like, I go, what am I supposed to do? He's like, because I don't know, it just looks weird. I was like, all right, well, I got that going for me now. So thanks for the encouragement, partner, and appreciate that. So, you know, we all bring our stuff here, right? It just is what it is. But the truth is God is just so good. And we have been through this journey in the Gospel of John, and what we're going to look at today is the fact that This important lesson that we walk away with that Jesus is not just some random traveling teacher, but that he is in fact God. The entirety of John's gospel is actually written in this light. As we know, this journey that we've been on, for those of you that weren't here last week, we've wrapped it up. Our actual textual kind of exposition of the book is over. We have made it through two years and two months, right? Some 21 chapters and 879 verses and 15,635 words and 480 pages that I've written over this thing. Just me alone and Brandon did his fair share of these messages as well. We have made it through all of that. And so as we go through this journey, it's important for us that we come to the end to stop and survey the land that we've been on, right? We've, we've come for two years and it's important we get to the end and we look back and we look at some of the distance that we've covered, And so for the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at like lessons that we learned about Jesus along the way. And it's not an exhaustive list. It's not a perfect list. It's just a list of things that I believe we saw, these kind of giant milestone markers about who Jesus is that John kind of throws up for us. And last week we talked about the idea that Jesus was the anointed one. He was the Messiah and the importance of what that meant for you and I in terms of what we believe about who Jesus is. And it's important because, you know, today is Palm Sunday. It's an important day in the life of the church because this is the day that all our expectations are kind of turned completely upside down. Because, right, you remember the narrative. Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem on the back of a baby donkey, fulfilling Scripture hundreds and hundreds of years before they've been written about the king that would come, that the people believed would come to restore Israel as a political power. You know, Israel was under Roman rule. They believed this king, this Messiah, this anointed one was going to come from the line of David and he was going to rule like David. He was going to be a king's king and he was going to overthrow the occupiers. He was going to establish a political nation and no one would overthrow us again. They believed that. They wanted that. They longed for that. Yet here comes Jesus, right? This sort of traveling, wandering rabbi that's going around the countryside saying all kinds of crazy things that don't line up with things that we religiously want to hear. And he comes riding into town on that day, prophesying before in Scripture, on the back of a baby donkey, right? Not on a stallion or with chariots or led by soldiers. Yet the people laid their palm branches on the road in front of him. They laid those branches and they cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, they're saying, oh Lord, save us. They believe that this Jesus was going to come and reconcile all their political issues. That's the Messiah they wanted. It's the Messiah they expected. 
But the Messiah they got and that we got was something completely different, right? Jesus comes not to overthrow a political regime and a worldly kingdom, but he comes in to overthrow sin and establish a kingdom in our hearts. So Palm Sunday is the day that marks the entry of God's redemptive plan. The plan that would change all of human history that culminates on Easter as Jesus is raised from the dead. And we used John 15, 5 last week, and we talked about the role of the Messiah and what it means to be attached to the vine, attached to the Messiah, if you will. So lesson one we walked away with was Jesus is, in fact, the anointed one. He is the Messiah. The second thing we're going to learn about uh, Jesus, I I think we learned about Jesus from the Gospel of John, is, is what John's entire Gospel was anchored to was the single truth that Jesus is in fact God. That's John's entire narrative for us. He is not interested in telling you a history of the life of Jesus. He's not interested in making sure that we know every detail chronologically of Jesus' life. John's gospel is not organized that way. John's singular goal is that you would know that Jesus is in fact God. And that's what we're going to be this morning. We're going to look at John chapter 8 and we're going to explore that truth that Jesus is in fact God. Or John chapter 14, verse 8, excuse me, that Jesus is in fact God. And we're in that same really unique part of John's gospel that we were last week that we call the farewell discourse. It's the part of John's gospel where Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure. It happens in about a two-hour window from the moment that Judas Iscariot walks out of the upper room this coming Thursday, right, on, on what we call Monday Thursday, or the day that Jesus will be betrayed, Judas walks out of that room to go and tell the Pharisees and the chief priests that he knew where Jesus was, and they were going to give him some silver for this information. The very night that Jesus would be betrayed and handed over. And that window from when Judas leaves to when Jesus is arrested in the Mount of Olives, we have this giant piece of text, like four chapters of Jesus just talking to the disciples. It's the longest recorded discourse that we have in the Gospel of John where Jesus sort of uninterrupted is preparing them for his departure. And he's talking really plainly about what's going to happen. And he's telling the disciples that he is going to a place where they cannot come. And you may remember this from our study of John back in 14. And the disciples don't get it. They don't understand it. They've walked with Jesus for three years and now he's telling them that he's going somewhere that they cannot go. And so Peter's the first to argue. He's like, there's no way you're going a place that we don't know where you're going because we know all places, right? Peter's like going, that's impossible. Plus, we've given up our entire life for you. We've walked this countryside. We've seen you do the miraculous. We've given up our families and our careers to follow you. You can't tell us now that you're going where we can't go. And Jesus essentially says, yeah, sure I can. But I'm not going to go there alone forever. I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. And he says, you know the place that I'm going. My father's house has many rooms. And he kind of talks about that. And then Thomas kind of pipes up and he's like, wait a minute. We don't know where you're going. You haven't really told us. Even though he's told them, Thomas is thinking physically, where is this physical location that Jesus is going that we can't find? Because both Peter and Thomas are thinking about this sort of physical geography. I mean, Israel's not a big place. We kind of know where everything is. Like, where are you going? You tell us we know how to get there. Well, Jesus has been telling them for months and months that he was leaving. And he's going to a place with his father to prepare a place for them. And soon they would come, but right now they could not. Jesus knows that death is imminent. He knows that it's coming. The disciples are still lost. They just 
don't get it. And it's really hard to blame them. And so Thomas says, we don't know the way unless you show us the way. Like, in other words, tell us. And Jesus says that really famous verses in John chapter 14 that most people don't realize is attached to this text, right? But John 14, 6, Jesus says, he basically looks at, Phil, or, uh, looks at Thomas and says, you want me to show you the way? I am the way. I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So both Peter and Thomas are hung up in this sort of earthly picture. Well, this morning we're going to see Philip pipe in with his question. He's next. And they're all confused. And he's going to pipe in with his question. And Jesus is going to explain to Philip, right, this incredible truth that he and the Father are in fact one. And that their encounter with Jesus is actually an encounter with God. And we're going to walk away with that truth. And it's going to be an important one for us. Because Jesus is not just some traveling moral rabbi. He is, in fact, God in the flesh. He is the incarnation, right? The incarnation is the embodiment of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And he has come to rescue and redeem us. Let's take a moment, let's pray, and then we're going to dive into a few verses in John chapter 14. I promise we're going to, I don't have my watch on, I promise we're going to keep it short because I know the Masters is wrapping up. So let's, uh, let's take a moment, let's pray together. God, we thank you for we thank you for who you are. That you are in fact God. All of scripture, all of redemptive history points to that truth. Throughout our time and throughout the centuries, people have tried to put you in a different place. They've tried to say that Jesus was something else. But Lord, all of scripture points to the fact that Jesus is the very embodiment of God. Sinless and perfect, he walked this earth, was crucified dead, and was raised so that we might have life, true life, real life, abundant life. So Lord, we come before you this morning asking you to remind us of that incredible truth, that the words of Jesus are the words of God, the actions of Jesus are the actions of God. Lord, teach us and remind us that we have access to you, holy, mighty, redeeming, redeeming, restoring God through our relationship with Christ. And it changes everything. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask the Lord to just teach you this morning. Just whisper those things. Lord, please teach my heart this morning. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you, in front of you, even if you don't remember their name. We do this each week. We want to be in the habit of praying for other people. Everything that unfolds here on Sunday morning is not about you. Pray for the person beside you. Pray that God would move in their hearts this morning. Lord, we ask that you would take this text and you would teach our hearts. We've heard it before, but Lord, we ask that you to show us something fresh and new and true about who Jesus is and how that changes our hearts and our lives. We ask this in your perfect and holy name. Amen. So John chapter 8, right in the middle of that section, they're confused. The disciples are they're just struggling. Peter's asked his question. Thomas has asked his question. Now Philip's going to ask his question, all trying to get to the idea of Jesus. Where are you going? 
Why are you going there? Why can't we go? Are you leaving us alone? And Jesus' words are actually words of deep comfort. So in chapter 14, verse 8, Philip's going to pipe up. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus replied, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And that the fa- how, can I, how can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is my Father living in me who is doing this work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. So Philip's question is a little different than both Peter and Thomas's question. They're saying, give us a location. Tell us how to get to the place where you're going or we cannot go. Jesus, of course, talking spiritually. They're, of course, talking geographically. And they're saying, we need to know. And Jesus says, I am the way to get there. And so Philip says, okay, enough of their questions. Let me, let me throw something out at you. Here's the deal. We will truly believe you if you just show us where the Father is or show us the Father. That'll be enough. So Philip says, ignore their questions about where we're going and just show us the Father. You don't have to show us where the Father is. Just show us the Father. And then Jesus, he's just somewhat exasperated. Like he's just almost worn out of them, of their questions. And of course, not in the sinful way because Jesus is flawless, but you can feel it in his response, right? Philip says, hey, listen, just show us the Father. That'll be plenty. That's all we need. Like one more thing. And Jesus says, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been with you for such a long time, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus is basically saying to Philip, Philip, are you kidding me? Just show you the Father? For three years, we have walked around. You have touched the broken, the marginalized. You've seen me walk on water. We've fed 5,000. We've changed water to wine. We've watched the Pharisees and the religious leaders nearly, nearly kill us multitudes of times. You have watched the miraculous of the miraculous. You've seen the blind get sight. You've seen the lepers be healed. You have seen all of these things. And now you say to me, show you the Father and then we'll believe? Like, that'll be enough? Like, just one more miracle, and then finally we'll truly believe you. And you get the sense that Jesus is just like, really? After everything? He says, how can you look at me and say, show you the Father? When you see me, you see the Father. He is in me, and I am in him. him. His words are my words. His actions are him working through me. He said, but fine, if you don't believe any of that, he says in verse 11, if you don't believe any of that, then just believe the miracles themselves. He's saying, just see the evidence. I think there's a lot of us, of course, wrapped up in Philip, right? Like we've seen God do incredible things. We've seen over the course of our journey walking with him, however many years it's been since you've given your life to Christ, you've seen him do remarkable things, but we have really short memories as followers of Christ. And we're always asking for the next thing, like, God, just this one thing, right? Just fix this thing in my work. 
Well, God, just bind up this one relationship. Or God, just show me yourself here. And God's like, I have shown you, Trev, for 27 years, I have shown you my faithfulness. I've never left you. I've answered prayer after prayer after prayer. And yet you stand here and say, show me one more. Then I'll truly buy into trusting you. It's basically what Philip's saying. Just one more thing. Just show us the Father, right? And of course, he's asking for this giant one. Like, just show us God. And Jesus says, you've seen him. And it's a really powerful statement because he basically says, Philip is saying, show us God. Show us the Father. That's all we're asking here. Not much, right? Show us God. Philip, I've been with you such a long time. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So Jesus points to the oneness of the Father and the Son. And this is a really important thing because a lot of people in our culture don't want to believe that Jesus ever claimed to be God. I actually ran to this in seminary. I may have mentioned it way back in when we were actually studying these texts. But I ran to it in seminary in a bunch of arguments we were having in class where essentially one of these widely held views, it has now pretty much gained even more prevalence, but a widely held view about Jesus is that Jesus actually never claimed to be God. Jesus was a great moral teacher. And we can buy into his teachings without having to deal with the lunacy of him claiming to be God. We have a lot of people out there that believe Jesus was this great sort of teacher. I used to run into it when we lived in Austin all the time. People that wanted to follow the teachings of Jesus, but not want to deal with Jesus' crazy claims to be God. So they would say, well, Jesus actually never claimed that. That's what the church has made this out to be. Jesus was actually a great rabbi and a great teacher. He has a lot of wonderful things to say to humanity. That's the Jesus I follow. I can get behind Jesus. I just can't get behind Christianity. It's a very widely held idea. The problem with it is, is that, of course, it's not true. That just because Jesus never said these three words linked together, I am God, does not ever mean that he didn't make that single claim. Jesus claimed the oneness of the Father and Son all the time. In fact, we see it here. I and the Father are one. But what is even more important is that the people in those days knew exactly what Jesus was claiming. In John 10, I don't know if you remember this or not, but in John 10, Jesus is standing outside the temple. And he's actually under Solomon's colonnade where a bunch of people went to teach all the time and where Jesus spent quite a bit of time. And Jesus, in John chapter 10, the very end of that kind of middle, in the middle section there on, on, uh, on chapter 10, he actually says, as he's teaching, he says, I and the Father are one. It says that again the Jews picked up stones to kill him. But Jesus says, I've shown you so many great miracles from the Father. Which of these are you killing me for? Like he looks at the Pharisees and says, why do you want to throw a rock at me? I've done a ton of great things, a bunch of miracles. Which of the miracles do you want to kill me for? The Pharisees say this, we're not stoning you for any of these miracles, right? But we're stoning you for blasphemy because you, a mere man, claim to be God. See, the Pharisees, they weren't killing Jesus because he was changing water into wine. They, weren't, they were mad that he was healing on the Sabbath, but they were going to kill him for that. They were mad that he threatened their way of life and all that, but they were wanting to kill Jesus because he, a mere man, they believed he was a mere man, claimed to be God. 
A lot of us in our culture want to believe that Jesus was a great moral teacher. But the problem is, if we're really going to believe that, we have to understand all the claims that Jesus made. And we have to do something with the fact that he claimed to be God. Jesus claimed oneness with the Father, which means we either have to believe that he's a complete and absolute liar, that he's some kind of crazy con man, or that he's an absolute lunatic. Because you cannot look at the teachings of Jesus and say, you know what? I'm going to buy into that guy's teaching. He's great. He's moral. The same guy also claimed to be God. David Koresh did that in Waco. Those of you that are old enough to remember. You don't take the moral teachings of someone who is also claiming to be the creator of the universe. So we got to do something with that, right? Jesus does, in fact, claim to be one with the Father. And that claim has several really unique characteristics to it that we see he answers Philip with. The first of those characteristics are that the words of Jesus are the words of God. He actually says this to Philip. He says, Philip, how can you say this to me, right? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? I am in the Father and the Father is in me. The words I say are not my own. It is the Father living in me. So Jesus is saying, look, the words I speak to you are the very words of God. That means that the words of Jesus that we see in Scripture are the words of God himself. That's why we say every Sunday morning that an encounter with God's word is an encounter with God. We take very highly our encounters with Scripture because if Jesus spoke these words, they are the very words of God. We believe that Scripture itself is God-breathed. It's the theopunestos. It's the very breath of God. And therefore, it's not something we take lightly as a guidebook for our lives to give us some moral encouragement so that we don't blow a few things, don't drink too much, don't steal, don't rob, don't kill. It's part of the paradigm. But the entirety of Scripture is wrapped up in this picture that these are God's words and that Jesus' words are, in fact, the words of God. So when Jesus says, I and the Father are one, God himself is saying, Jesus is the embodiment of me. He is the incarnation. Jesus is not some moral teacher. He is God in the flesh who has come to redeem the world. So the words of Jesus are the words of God. But he takes it one step farther. Jesus says this. He says, The Father is in me and I am in the Father. The words I say to you are not my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Which means the actions of Jesus are the actions of God. So not only are Jesus' words the words of God, but the actions of Jesus are the actions of God. God is working in me. He is in me, the Father, and he is doing his work. Which means the things that Jesus did are the actions of God. Jesus is not wandering around the Judean countryside just kind of willy-nilly. He is carrying out the redemptive plan of the creator of the universe. That Jesus' plan himself And all of his humanity was not to go to the cross, but all of the divinity in Jesus, the actions of God, walked Jesus to the cross in obedience to the Father who was living in him. And what we're beginning to see is the baseline for a full-blown doctrine of the Trinity, that Jesus is fully God and he is fully man. 
So we see this sort of oneness picture. It's coming out that the, the words of Jesus are the words of God. The actions of Jesus are the very actions of God. And then we have this one last final picture here that rolls out there. That if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. You've seen God. And he's very clear about that with the disciples. That if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So when Philip says, show us the Father, Jesus says, you're looking at him. Which is this radical statement. But it goes back to John chapter 1, right? Do you remember John chapter 1, two years, two months ago when we started this? When, when John tells us that Jesus was the Logos, right? The Word of God. And in John chapter 1, he says, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Speaks to the preexistence of Christ, that Jesus always was, and that Jesus was and is God. <clears throat> so why is that important? Why is that, that a giant lesson that we've learned? Because most of us live in that camp where we want to adhere to the moral teachings of Christ, but we do not want to surrender our lives over to his lordship. We really do want to give uh, do unto others as we would have them do unto ourselves, or we want to serve and, and, and do those things that Jesus says. We want to lay down our lives for our friends. We want to do all those moral pieces of Jesus' teaching because we think it's just good for humanity. But very few of us want to surrender to the lordship as if Jesus was God himself. But to acknowledge Jesus is to acknowledge the Father. And what Jesus calls for is surrender to the Lordship of Christ. And to surrender to the Lordship of Christ means that I have to recognize that if I say Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is the Father, that Jesus is God, and to surrender that Lordship means he gets every part of my life, even the parts I don't want to cut loose of or turn loose of, that I have to recognize that he is Lord of my heart, he is Lord of my family, my wife, my children, my financial world, my work world, my existence. He gets every piece of it. That I cannot surrender the Lordship of Christ without surrendering all of me. And this is where most of us do battle with God. We want to surrender parts of it. We love the teachings of Christ. We love the idea of worship. But we do not love the idea of laying down our entire lives before him. But this is the call of every Christ follower. If we believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is God, then he demands and deserves our complete and total death to self and nothing less. That if Jesus claims to be God are true and we believe them to be true, then the Lordship of Christ demands death to ourself, which is the single greatest struggle in all of our Christian lives. Because we are willing to die to parts of ourselves for sure. But we are not really willing to die to all of it. If we believe that Jesus is God and he is our Lord, that means he's Lord of our hearts and he's Lord of our lives and demands the death of ourself. So here's the call in the middle of all this. We think about Palm Sunday and Jesus riding into town on this donkey and the idea that Jesus is in fact God. If we truly believe that he is God, we truly believe that he is Lord, then that, our Christian lives cannot be defined by walking into church on a Sunday, singing the songs that we like, right? 
carrying out a few things during the week to make sure we're morally okay, and then rolling back here on a Sunday, doing battle with God over control issues the rest of the days of the week. It will lead to restlessness, it'll lead to mediocrity, it will lead to resentment, and eventually it will lead to death. The call of the Christ follower is complete and total surrender of self to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, who is, in fact, God. That means that whatever God is calling you to release, whatever Jesus is speaking to your heart to cut loose of, to let go of that fear, that anxiety, that failure, that fight, that thing, let it die. If you believe that Jesus is in fact God, he is in fact Lord, then he is big enough to take care of everything in you. Because riding in the town on the back of that baby donkey was not a mere man. But God in the very flesh that he created to die so that you might have victory over sin and death and have true, real, abundant life here on earth and the promise of eternal life to come. And what following that God means is complete surrender of myself. We learn about Jesus, that he is the anointed one, he is the Messiah. And he is also God in the flesh. He is the incarnation. And he demands and deserves our complete and total surrender. Death to self, it's the ultimate call of the gospel. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you, God, that that call is not new. We should have all heard it a billion times, but it runs the breadth of the gospel. From the beginning to the end, the gospel of John, that call is true that Jesus was with God and Jesus is in fact God. He is the Logos. From John chapter one through John chapter 10, where Jesus claims that I and the Father are one, to John chapter 14, where he looks at Philip and he says, I, when you have seen me, you have seen the Father. <clears throat> His words are my words. His work is in me. Lord, I confess that I have tried to follow Jesus without actually surrendering my life to him. I have loved so much of what he has taught me and I have ignored so much of the other. But the truth is, Lord, like he's telling the disciples that there is a place where he is going that they cannot yet come, but that he is giving them access to, that he ultimately is the way, the truth, and the life, and there is no other access to the Father except through the Son. <clears throat> Lord, we believe that truth, that the only way to access the Father is through the Son, through relationship with Jesus Christ, through surrender to the Lordship of Christ, and most of us, myself included, do battle with that every day. Lord, we confess that we don't want to surrender all of our lives. We confess that we're afraid, that we have anxieties that run our hearts, that we're petrified of giving you everything in our dark closets of our heart releasing our financial woes and worries, our marital woes and worries, our, our work woes and worries. We're afraid of trusting you, our Lord, with all of those things. So Lord, I pray as we close our time in worship, what you would do is you would imprint on our heart this truth, that Jesus is in fact God, and that he loves us, and that he came for us. So that we might have full life here, and the promise of abundant life to come. True eternal life. So Lord, as we close our time in worship, help us totally and truthfully rely upon you.
to die to the fears and anxieties in our heart that we've yet to surrender to you and surrender wholeheartedly our lives and everything in them to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Redeemer. Let's stand together and close our time in worship.